In this special mid-month episode of See, Hear, Speak podcast, I speak with Emily Hanford, Kate Nation, and Norma Craffey as a follow-up to my first episode on the Reading Wars. That episode has been quite popular with 3,000 listens since its release in November of last year. The Reading Wars is a long-standing debate about the best way to teach children to read. Kate updates us on what's been happening since we spoke to her and Ann Castles about their popular open access paper on the Reading Wars. Emily Hanford tells us about her strong advocacy for better reading instruction, and Norma Craffey provides her view from the trenches as a teacher and reading specialist. We cover a variety of topics, including the language basis of reading, parent and teacher advocacy, and what's on the horizon in education policy. A heads up that in this episode, there's some explicit language around the one hour mark. Per usual, we end our conversation with Kate, Emily, and Norma describing their current most exciting projects and favorite books. This podcast marks the halfway point in my first year. To mark this occasion, I'm giving a special shout out to those who have helped me along the way. Bo Bevins is my skillful web designer. Rosanna Komosedu is a trusted editor. Allie Hansen is my transcription wizard and Selena Avarez created my fun logo. There are so many more I could thank, but for now, I'll stop there. Thank you for listening, and don't forget to check out www.seehearspeakpodcast.com to sign up for email alerts for new episodes and content, read a transcript of this podcast, access articles and resources that we discussed, and find more information about our guests. Also, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast in Apple Podcasts or wherever you are listening. Welcome to See, Hear, Speak podcast. I'm very excited about today's episode, uh, Reading Wars Part 2. And I have Emily Hanford and Kate Nation, as well as Norma Craffey, and I'm going to have them introduce themselves. Uh, why don't we start out with Emily? Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, so I am a correspondent for APM Reports. We are the documentary and investigative reporting team at American Public Media, which is public radio. And I have been doing a lot of reporting on reading in particular over the past couple of years. And in, I cover education full time and have been doing that since about 2008. So I can talk a little bit later about how I came to reporting on reading in particular. Uh, but my reporting on education since 2008 has been in all areas of education from early education, although primarily I focused on secondary education and post-secondary education over the last decade or so. Great. Kate. Hi, um, I'm Kate and I'm um, uh, here speaking to you here today from Oxford in the, in, in the UK. Um, I'm an experimental psychologist by training and I've been working on issues to do with the psychology of reading, the cognitive science of reading and reading related processes for uh, more years than I care to report in public, but 20, 20 plus years. And I, and I guess my work has really sort of centred around the, the reading wars type theme over the last year or so, uh, largely as a consequence of a paper I wrote with Anne Castles and, and Cathy Russell, where we used reading words in the reading wars in the title. and. Uh, I, quite a lot of uh, publicity as, as followed from that. Yeah. Great. And Norma? My name is Norma Craffey and I'm a reading specialist and public school teacher by training. Um, I taught primarily in pre-K to two before I was a reading specialist and I am a first year doctoral student and my mentor is Dr. Hogan. Great. 
Um, so I'll start with Emily. Can you tell us a little bit about what drives your passion for evidence-based reading instruction through your reporting? Right. Well, I, I really knew virtually nothing about how children learn to read and how they're being taught a few years ago. And my interest in this topic was actually sparked through an interest in particular uh, with kids who have dyslexia, which was also a topic I knew nothing about. I don't, I don't have kids who struggled especially to read. I didn't struggle to read. Some people are kind of surprised by this. They assume I, I must have found my way into this topic through some kind of personal experience with a struggling reader. Uh, that's the way many people find their way into this topic for good reason. But I came to this uh, purely through work, through sort of journalistic interest. And I've been reporting on it for more than two years now, which is unusual. I don't usually stick with a, a topic this narrowly for that long. But what's sustained my interest in reading and the reading research is, I think this is a huge story that has been um, largely overlooked recently by journalists like me um, for, for too long. And I think it's kind of been misunderstood uh, by many people, including journalists. Uh, the reading research is absolutely fascinating. So I'm sort of hooked on just an intellectual level, to be honest. <laughs> it's just really interesting stuff to be reading about all the time and talking to people about and writing about. And I think perhaps most importantly, um, there are a lot of struggling readers out there. Um, people who have unidentified dyslexia, who need intensive help and intervention. But I think more significantly, the, the bigger problem is that lots and lots of people are struggling to read um, because of the way that they're being taught, not necessarily because of any kind of major phonological deficit that might be giving them a dyslexia label. I mean, I think we're creating some dyslexia. We can talk about what that word means later if we want, uh, by the way that we're teaching kids to read. And so the, you know, the big takeaway for me on the reporting that I initially did on kids with dyslexia, which was a couple of years ago now, is that they're just, they're not getting the help they need in school. They're not getting identified. People don't know what to do with them. Parents are flipping out because my kid's not reading and they go to the school and they demand help. And some of them spend thousands of hours and dollars trying to get the help they need. And what they figure out is that in many schools, no one really knows that much about what to do. And that's one of the reasons why kids with dyslexia, I think, have such a big problem. So what the dyslexia reporting, and in particular the dyslexia advocates, the moms, the dyslexia moms, as I've come to call them, really taught me is that we have a big problem when it comes to unidentified and untreated, as it were, dyslexia. But the bigger problem is a core instruction problem. And the root of that problem is that, you know, while experimental psychologists like Kate and, and many, many, many others have been doing all of this amazing research on reading for the past 50 years or so, uh, how skilled reading works, how kids learn to do it, what's, what's going on when things are going wrong and kids aren't learning to read, what it means about how struggling readers need to be taught and how all readers need to be taught. There's this like just a gigantic body of evidence and information that I knew nothing about that I think most people know nothing about. And this information sadly is also not making its way into schools. So the people who are actually teaching kids to read, for the most part, don't know anything or much about this huge body of evidence. And so we're facing like, I think we're facing like a huge knowledge crisis. There's, there's all this knowledge about reading, but the people who actually teach reading for the most part don't have it. And it means we've got all these kids who are struggling to read. And one last point about what sustains my interest in this, there are no silver bullets in education at all, but it, this is the closest thing we've got if we actually could teach all kids how to read pretty well by the end of second grade, and virtually 
you know, most kids can learn to read pretty well by the end of second grade. If we could do that, we could prevent so many of the other problems that we have in schools. You, you can list basically all of them. Behavior problems, problems with kids getting disengaged in middle school, kids dropping out of high school, kids going on to college and not being able to get through college. Many of these things, a root cause of these problems is struggling to read the words on the page when they're little kids, five and six years old. So if we can teach kids to read, we could really mitigate, prevent so many of the other problems that we're spending so many hours and billions of dollars trying to solve in education. Absolutely. So you you reported on this through a, a documentary, a podcast documentary called Hard Words, Why Aren't Kids Being Taught to Read? And Kate, you have a paper titled, you know, Enter the or Ending the Reading Wars, as you mentioned uh, when you introduced yourself. So, Emily, you really shine a light on the reading wars in your podcast. Can you tell us about what you've learned about the reading wars and how does that impact this issue of not, you know, children not receiving the type of core instruction they need to learn to read? Well, I think there are a lot of different things going on. Um, I mean, I think it's certainly clear. It was clear to me while I was reporting, and it's certainly been made more clear to me since this most recent podcast that I did came out, which was last September, um, that there that we're, we're still having a war about reading. There's a lot of disagreement about how to teach kids to read. There's a lot of resistance. I think one part of the story is that, that there, there still is resistance to phonics, at least here in the United States. Um, it, that's clear in the response to my reporting. I think there's some hope here. Like what I've observed is that a lot of this resistance actually comes from faculty and colleges of education. Uh, and people who, who have some kind of like dog in the fight kind of, like people who've been supporting or selling different ideas, different ideas about what kids need to be able to learn to read. So I, but I, so I think the resistance to phonics comes from people who've put a lot of eggs in the basket that it's not that important. But I think a lot of the resistance to it really comes from a misunderstanding about the, the, like, the critical role of phonics and phonemic awareness and learning to read. Like people who know the scientific research on reading, you just don't hear the same kind of resistance to phonics among people who know the research base. That doesn't mean there aren't plenty of things to talk about when it comes to phonics and how to teach it. Um, I think in, in England, you guys are sort of adv advanced beyond the United States and maybe Canada and New Zealand and Australia, because this is a fight all over the English speaking world, which I think we can also talk about why that is a little bit later. Uh, it seems like in England, you guys are having a little bit more of a fight about how to teach phonics. I think we're still a little bit stuck on the question of sort of not exactly whether to teach it, because I do think we've made some progress. Like you, it's hard to find people who are just against phonics full stop. Um, but I think that there's a misunderstanding about how critical it is. There's a misunderstanding about how to teach it and how much of it kids need. And there's really a lack of knowledge about how the English language works. Um, a lot of the resistance that I have heard from people about phonics kind of stems from, I think, there, this idea that you can't teach English using phonics because it's such a wacky, irregular language. And that's just a misunderstanding about the English language. There just needs to be more knowledge about how you explain the English language to kids because it's, it's true. We have a complex language. It's not easily described in a few phonics rules. We don't have one-to-one -one correspondence of sounds and letters. But you can explain, and Kate can talk about this, virtually every single word in the English language, you can explain the spelling of it if you really think about teaching kids not phonics, but how their written language works, which is the phrase that I've been starting to think about. I think we get stuck on this fight about phonics. And the key here is 
that little kids coming to school know how to talk. <laughs> they know how to say a lot of words. They know the meaning of a lot of words. There are variations in terms of when kids are coming to school in terms of how much they know, how many words they know, how much they understand, how much sort of background knowledge and knowledge they have. That's for sure. We need to be dealing with that in school. But the primary thing that all kids arriving in school need to do is figure out how their written language works. They know how to say all this stuff. They understand what things mean when, it, when they're talking, but they don't know the way the written language works. So that phonics is a big part of it, but there are a lot of other parts of learning how your written language works. I mean, number one, phonemic awareness. Phonics means nothing if you're not doing good phonemic awareness if kids don't have that. And understanding how your written language works, which Kate talks about beautifully in the paper that she did, um, it's about other things too. It's about morphology. It's about etymology. In the English language, it's about understanding the structure, how words are put together and why and where they come from. And this stuff needs to be taught to little kids because it's totally fascinating, first of all. And because, you know, some kids are going to get it with just a little bit of instruction, but most kids aren't. And all kids benefit from having it. Plenty of people have told me, I'm an okay reader, but I can't really spell. And if you understand the relationship between spelling and reading, you understand that that's actually a little bit of a problem, like that, that we would have a lot of better spellers if we were teaching kids how their written language works starting when they arrive at school when they're five years old. Anyway, I have some other thoughts about why we still fight about reading, but I'm going to let other people chime in and I can come back to some of that. Well, that's great. And actually hearing you talk about it, Emily, it just seems like such a no brainer. You know, you're saying, oh, this is what we need. The research is out there. Kate, what prompted you to write the Reading Wars paper? And then can you tell us like what if, you know, when you say war, it it, it brings to mind two sides battling. Mm -hmm. And so what yeah. are those two sides and why did you write the paper? Yeah, well, the, the, the goal in writing the paper really was just the, the, the recognition, as, as Emily alluded to, that in the, the, the cognitive science, or the science of reading, the field's made such enormous progress over the last 20, 30, 40 years. And while there's lots of things left to discover and lots of you know, disagreements uh, around the edges, there's a core body of knowledge which is well replicated, well understood and um, pretty clear. And it seemed to us that the translation of that into the classroom wasn't as good as it could be, given the, the strength and the quality and the consensus in the evidence base. And what we were hearing um, in Australia and in the UK, and certainly it seems in, in the States as well, about the, the, the gap between what a practitioner knows in a classroom and what the, the science of reading might, might tell us. So we wanted um, to, to write something to, to bring the, the psychology of reading to a more in a more accessible form, an open access paper in a more accessible form, but also to encourage us as scientists to think about what we can do better to translate our work and what sort of research do we need to do to help bridge that gap more, more so. So that, that was the plan and we didn't intend to call it Reading Wars to, to start with at all. And in fact, it was quite a late decision to put Reading Wars in the title and a little bit of disagreement between the three of us. Um, I wasn't particularly keen on calling it the Reading Wars because it just seemed a, a little bit um, inflammatory perhaps. Um, but I, I, we, we decided to go for it. Um, and in fact, one of the reviewers, a very um, well-known reading researcher, academic reading researcher sort of said, great paper, but I don't think there is a reading war anymore. It's settled, it's sorted, and I don't think you need this in the title. And um, you know, by that time, we, you know, things had taken off on Twitter a little bit on reading wars type thing, and we could just point to all these 
battles uh, and, and, and arguments out there. So we stood our ground and said we wanted to keep reading wars in the title. And I think what's happened since then and what's happened since Emily's podcast last September has made clear that there is still wars going on, despite the broad consensus in the scientific literature, there is still a lack of um, communication and, 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 and understanding about how the written language system works and from that, from that how we can best teach teaching. So um, on reflection, I'm glad we kept it in the title. I think it's encouraged us to think more broadly and encouraged us to think, keep thinking about what we need to do, both in terms of basic research and also making those important connections to, to what's happening in the classroom. So I'll turn it to Norma now. Uh, no, so Norma, can you respond to the idea that a reviewer might think that the reading wars are over? Do you see the reading wars happening in the classroom? Yes, I, I from the there's so many points that both of you said that I agree with. Just from having been, um, you know, in public schools, I started in 2005, and I was definitely one of those teachers who was not trained in any reading science. Reading was going to be magical you know, it was going to happen. And when it didn't happen, there was something wrong with the child. And that has been a pretty consistent theme through all I've worked in multiple districts, states. And from my perspective, once I realized that um, there, there were things that I could be doing differently, partially because I had a colleague who was trained at Haskins Lab through a project in Connecticut, um, through some of the priority districts in Hartford. And we were teaching first grade together and she just knew so much about the technicality and I realized the gap that I didn't know. And we had a relationship where I could ask questions and go in and observe her and that really grew my practice. However, when I moved into the reading teacher role, I really noticed that when I started to talk about research, phonics was a dirty word. And applying an intervention that for a child who is struggling with code, which phonics and you know, with the added PA would be the most appropriate was really nothing I could ever talk about in RTI meetings. It's nothing that um, people, even like the classroom teachers would be very resistant. They said that that's not something that's done here. That's something that you do. Um, you know, there really was just a, a huge struggle. And even when our district tried to become more evidence-based, um, there were a lot of struggles between the people who were sitting at the table as to what exactly the evidence said what was balanced literacy and how we incorporated um, the research into it. And just that was one of the main reasons why I came to study with Dr. Hogan was because of this gap between the two and how important it is to bridge that gap. Um, so yes, I can report from public schools that it's definitely um, alive and well and that there, I, I think a lot of it is, is um, fueled by the way in which we structure our education where we're not giving teachers the teacher training. And then once we get into our teaching position, we're expected to be experts already. And there's not a room, there's not a room to grow or to be able to take risks. And um, at times it can be a really stressful environment for teachers. And I really like Emily, how you talked about in hard words, um, so much of what they were doing in that school really hit home with me and other districts I've worked in. But that when we knew better, we did better. And that guilt that teachers feel, because I know that I definitely certainly have felt that guilt about some of the kids that I worked with when um, you know, I was just starting out. So I think it's important to acknowledge that yes, there's a reading war still going on and that teachers need support and they need training and we need to find a way to hold schools accountable for implementing this because it was part you know, of the National Reading Panel recommendations and also the you know IDA 2004 as well as the RTI implementation. And I'll say too that um, we 
we've still a bit danced around it. So I'm going to say for the listeners, you know, what exactly is the reading war? So my um, understanding uh, from my own personal experience, uh, you know, teaching uh, reading to children who have dyslexia and studying reading processes is that the reading war really boils down to is reading a natural process or not? If, you know, teachers are often taught as Norma hit on that reading is magical and that what children need to learn to read words is that they need to have a rich language environment. They need to, you need to, as a teacher, foster a joy of reading, expose them to authentic texts, um, and that this process of learning how to read written words will unfold through the natural language process. That's one side, and that side is typically called the whole language side. Um, and it's also been repackaged, I think, a bit to maybe be called balanced literacy, um, a focus on authentic text. The other side, if we're thinking about this war, is the phonics side. And as Norma mentioned, there that's why you have an association of, you think like, why would the word phonics have, be a dirty word? Well, when you have a war, you start to have a war of words as well. And so with phonics, the idea is that uh, we know from scientific research that uh, the reading process is, when it comes to learning how to read written words, is not a natural process. It has to be taught. That our brain has evolved to uh, be adept to natural language processing through spoken language, but we know from brain studies um, that children actually recruit areas of the brain that are associated more with face recognition, for instance, to then learn about letters, letter sounds, and the correspondence between the two, but it has to be explicitly taught for many children. And when you do ex explicitly teach the letter sound correspondence for written language, you see that there actually is this uh, insurgence of more spoken language knowledge because they're learning from books. So have I characterized that correctly? Would you add Kate or Emily to that characterization in terms of the actual war portion based on your personal experiences? Well, one of the things I, I would say is that I think you did get it right in kind of the way that it, it sort of originally, the, the, that's sort of the foundation of where the kind of war began. That was, certain, that was certainly sort of the terms of it um, in the 80s and 90s. I think one of the tricky, slippery things that's going on now in 2019 is that you, this idea that learning is sort of natural and magical, I mean, Tiffany, you said it really well, like this idea that it basically happens automatically and when it doesn't, there's something wrong with the kid. I think that is the basic belief when you look, when you probe into what teachers have learned and what they believe, when you look carefully at like curriculum materials, that underlying belief that it's, that, that the, the main um, factor in learning how to read is about access to books and motivation to read, that if you're motivated to read, you will figure it out. At the same time, the tricky, slippery thing that I want to point out is that in a typical balanced literacy classroom here in the United States, there has been an embrace of some phonics, some phonemic awareness, some direct instruction. If you look at the materials for a lot of the things that are popular, the idea that teachers need to directly teach some things is there. It, it's not, they, they, they are not sort of fully embracing this idea that it's natural. The role of the teacher and that the teacher has to do something is acknowledged. So the problem is, where does that leave us? Like, why, why is it still kind of off? <laughs> and I think it is still kind of off. And I, I think it, it, it's, 
one of the things that happens in a typical balanced literacy classroom is we've kind of thrown in, like, everything but the kitchen sink is in there, kind of. It's kind of like a little bit of everything all at once, like, check, check, box, I got it. I got all the right terms for the National Reading Panel Report. Everything that science says is in here. And it is. But the question is, like, what do you emphasize when and how much? And all those little details about how you do the teaching of phonics and phonemic awareness. Get, like I said, getting more, we are getting closer to this argument about how you do it, rather than do you do it at all. And that's a really good thing. But I do think that it's, we do have to acknowledge what you were talking about, Tiffany. Phonics still is kind of a dirty word because of the reading war. So most people be like, I'm for it, but they don't really totally buy it. Because if you resist it, you don't really get the science. You just don't. So if people start asking you lots of questions about or raising lots of red flags about it, you go like, okay, I think we need to start over. <laughs> we need to like clear the deck here and begin to talk about why is it that phonics is such an important part, one part of learning how to read. Um, but again, I think one of the things you want to talk about is the simple view and how helpful that is, but also some of the new thoughts about where the simple view might need to be made more complicated. Um, but the simple view is this very important idea that I think probably most listeners to this podcast understand. Uh, but it was what I was referring to before, that there are these two crucial elements to reading. There's your like ability to decode the words and then your language comprehension and your reading comprehension is a product of the two. And one of the things that balanced literacy does, which is a... Uh, because it's because its roots are in whole language is just sort of confuse is just make it about reading comprehension right away is confuse it all altogether so the little kids who don't actually know very much about reading the words on the page are expected to be making all kinds of meaning from the text right away which just isn't a good use of time like one of the ways that I've been thinking about when I look at classrooms is sort of opportunity cost you can sort of look at a lot of the stuff and say well it's not like a lot of this stuff is some of it's kind of really often wrong, but some of it's not so wrong. It's just kind of like not what you do right now. Like, what do you do right now? Then the kid masters this set of things, and then what do you do next? And then what do you do when a kid is struggling? And then what do you do? So it's more understanding the ways that re learning to read is a developmental process. But again, that's one of our problems because sometimes people will talk to you about the developmental process and what they actually believe under there is that all kids will learn to read eventually as long as they have exposed to books that they want to read. Um, so that's not really what the science says about in terms of it being a developmental process. But it is a developmental process in terms of there's these different skills that you're acquiring. Like one of the ways that I think when I look at a typical balanced literacy classroom is I think, you know, the underlying belief in a lot of this stuff, a lot of the way that time is being spent, is that the way you become an expert is you mimic what experts do. But that's not the way you become an expert. The way you become an expert is you learn all these different skills that are part of being expert at something. We get so, good readers get so good at reading words. It's such an unconscious process. They don't, they're not aware of how it's happening. It's happening so quickly, so accurately. Even though we're not born with brains that are meant to read, some of us get, our brains get so good at reading. So it's very hard for someone who's already good at reading to understand all the little pieces that need to be in place. And that's kind of like, I think, the fundamental flaw in a lot of balanced literacy is just assuming that expertise is acquired through mimicking what experts do. And some of it gets to the phonics is a dirty word kind of thing. Like I think it's important to acknowledge 
that there is a lot of not very good phonics instruction going on. And there certainly was, I think, a lot of not very good sort of rote, boring, work shitty phonics uh, stuff going on when the reading wars kind of got going. So it's important to acknowledge that people may have had sort of bad experiences with phonics. But two things I would say to that. Number one, what looks rote and boring to an adult is not necessarily rote and boring to a, child, to a child who is learning how to read words at the beginning. And number two, phonics is so important that if it's a little bit of rote and boring, it might be fine. <laughs> I mean, like phonics is so important, you can't skip it just because it's not being taught well. We should certainly strive to teach it well, but actually phonics should probably be taught not well in, in, in favor of not being taught at all. If, if someone can't figure out how to teach it, they should keep trying to teach it, even if they're gonna do it badly along the way, because it's such a crucial part of being a good reader. Well, you mentioned that. You just said, even the, let me just say one thing. Even the whole language people acknowledge, many of them, that phonics is important to being a good reader. It's just how do you get there? And the idea in whole language is that you learn phonics through reading. Yep. And you do actually. That's the, that's the other thing. You actually do. Once you sort of begin, you get that you break the you begin to break the code, there's a decent amount, and Kate can weigh in, because she knows much more about this than I do, but self-teaching that's involved. And we do actually teach ourselves a lot of what we know about language. But it's like you need to get people started, and some people just need a lot more help than others. Kate, how do you, you know, Emily mentioned the simple view. So mm -hmm. you, the simple view was pretty prominent in your Reading Wars paper. Maybe I think that because I'm a fan. Um, so can you tell us about you know, how you think the simple view factors into the discussion of the reading wars? Yeah, I think I think thinking and certainly communicating to a broad audience, the simple view of reading has been really helpful, actually. We've made good progress by 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 doing that. And I, I think what the simple view allows us to um, communicate and think about is reading in a broad sense while not missing some of the very important things that Emily was covering in her discussion just now. So if we say, you know, reading, what do we mean by reading? And this is, we talk at cross purposes. We can talk talk about a child reading, a five-year-old child who can, you know, who's just struggling and just beginning to learn to read, is reading. Equally, a graduate student in a literary criticism class thinking about, you know, onomatopoeia and Macbeth is reading, you know, and these are completely different things. And yet we use the same vocabulary, the same word reading and reading comprehension to mean something from, you know, alphabetic knowledge through to literary criticism. And um, that's all reading, you know, and ultimately it's what children need to learn to be able to do through the course of reading instruction. But um, it can't all happen at once, clearly. Yeah. Um, so I think on the positive side, the simple view has been really helpful in enabling everybody to see the complexity of reading in one place, yet focus on the component parts as well. And particularly then when taking a developmental perspective on that and think about what's important at what time in a child's um, journey. And a nice thing about the simple view is that it puts decoding, whatever it is that we're going to define in that decoding box, but it puts that at the heart of learning to read, um, but says that this is not, it's necessary, but it's not sufficient. And I think that's the other thing I'd just add to what Emily was saying about the reading wars more generally, this notion that it's either whole language and motivation and all the wonderfulness of reading or really boring phonic drills, but nobody is saying it's phonics only. And yet part of the dichotomy between whole language versus phonics is that it's either or. Um, and there's nobody seriously, I think, who says it's just phonics. It's a question of, um, the idea that alphabetic knowledge, knowledge about how the language works more generally beyond 
graphene phoneme correspondences is absolutely fundamental because it's how our writing system works and the evidence is clear that children need to be taught some of that to get access to the system to kick start the system there were then discussions to be had and i don't think the evidence base is as complete as it needs to be as to how much phonics and when one starts to bring in other types of direct instruction as well but clearly some phonic knowledge is in important at the outset if children don't know the alphabet they're not going to be able to read so teach the alphabet teach how letters and sounds associate together and so on and thinking about learning to read in the simple view terms tells us why that's important because if we don't have that decoding box whatever's in the decoding box in place then comprehension can't happen the access to print being able to be motivated to read just isn't there because you can't read in any meaningful sense Equally, though, it tells us that the reverse is also true, that being able to decode really well is no um, guarantee that reading comprehension will happen. If I'm, if I'm reading Spanish, I could probably do it reasonably well, but my comprehension would be terrible. It's just, it's just not there. So I think that's the beauty of the simple view, that it allows space for everybody. And it sort of does away with the wars, really, because both um, language people and both phonics people can find their home in the model and are not having to give too much ground almost because you can see how you know the ultimate goal is there for all of us it's just a question of uh, what we might prioritize so i think the simple view has lots of um appeal in that way and of course there's also lots of evidence i mean from a scientific point of view the slightly frustrating thing about the simple view is that it explains everything but explains nothing at the same time uh in that it describes variance if we measure enough components of the simple view if we manage to measure everything that goes into the decoding box and everything that goes into the linguistic comprehension box we've explained reading comprehension we have 100 percent of the variance is explained but we've explained nothing at the same time we've just described it in a way so it's almost like it's um unfalsifiable now and it, 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 it's a truism it's it's a situation it's how it's how the world works it's, it's what it is so it's 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 great in that sense but it's also slightly frustrating to see it used in the scientific literature as an explanation when it isn't really explaining anything but that's not to deny it's important and it, it's true you know i think in, in as close as we can get to saying that this is how it is you know the evidence is so clear 100 percent of the variance nearly is is explained which is pretty remarkable in behavioral science i think um, so I hope introducing the, the simple view um, out of the pages of scientific journals via, you know, Emily's work and other people's work and so on is, is doing a good thing. I think in the UK, certainly we can see it's, it's used a lot in um, um, continuing professional development with teachers, speech language pathologists and so on. And I think to good effect because it makes sense, you know, it, it works. So, um, yeah, I, th I think the simple view is, is a way to move on from the reading walls, I think, I hope. I think that makes a lot of sense too, Kate. I think it's a starting ground. Uh, you know, it's like just the basic um, premise that we can all build from. But like you said, then there's nuances to move forward, but it seems like we can't even move forward from those, from yeah. that discussion unless we have at least a grounding. And I'm curious, you know, Norma, what's your impression about teachers knowing the simple view? I mean, you're involved in a lot of teacher education, Facebook groups with reading specialists, how how knowledgeable are reading specialists and teachers about the simple view? 
Um, I think it, within the reading specialist field, uh, depending on what your background and training is, the Simple View is something definitely that you have, you know, knowledge and training on. But as far as just general education and even within special ed, it's not something that I frequently have encountered people who have knowledge or background in. And I certainly didn't have it either until um, I was doing my reading specialist um, licensure as well. And I, I think I agree that it's really just this simple framework in which captures so much of the processes that eliminates all of um, the personal feelings related to how kids read. And I've always, I found it very useful when talking to teachers and looking at data and really trying to target the area of difficulty for kids to frame it within that simple view. It's been very helpful. One thing I really enjoyed um, about your recent paper, Kate, which I think I've downloaded at least personally a thousand times and shared with everyone, um, besides the you know intent, just wonderful way in which you describe the literature was the point that you highlighted that teachers need to know why they're doing something. And I think that that's a very important point that ties back to something that Emily was talking about is that we have this curriculum and when something goes wrong, we don't know what to do because teachers aren't necessarily trained in this vast knowledge of how reading and just learning and behavior in general works within young children. There's been, at least since the time I've been in education, a push towards having good curriculum and purchasing the next curriculum set that's modeled you know, Common Core or, um, you know, Balanced Literacy that has the big five. So there's a marketing component as well that I think is really putting both children and teachers at a disadvantage because we're, it's assumed that we don't need the expertise, that if we have good curriculum, we'll be fine. And, um, you know, teachers do have lots of expertise and training in how to work with kids, but we also really need to become content experts in teaching reading in K-2 um, and even down to preschool because really that is that is our job to do and that is really the only thing that needs to be taught during that grade level in order to leverage the rest of the resources appropriately. So I think that that's you know kind of a, an important point to think about is you know teacher training and, and having teachers being able to have a depth of knowledge around a topic in order to be able to teach it well. It seems like there's a push to almost like lobotomize teachers mm -hmm. to say, just, you know, do this curriculum, don't worry about it and just do it as you should. Mm -hmm. But then that also, I think, creates a lot of conflict because then you have this idea when you really get to the reading wars and this a fundamental mm -hmm. um, view that phonics could actually hurt a child. I mean, I've mm -hmm. heard many yeah. teachers talk about this, like, I don't want to do something that will hurt my the mm -hmm. children I'm seeing. What I mean by hurt is take the joy out of reading, turn them away from reading. Uh, there's also the idea of developmental appropriateness. So if I teach phonics too early, mm -hmm. right, that this could mm -hmm. be um, stunting their uh, intellectual development because they are, you know, pushing them. And it seems to me that the more knowledge you have about development and theories of reading and exper experimental uh, studies in reading, the more you would feel confident in the fact that you're not hurting children, but you're actually helping them. Yeah, and, I think and again, oh, go ahead, Kate. I think that's where the simple view can help as well, because it has the the word level reading and whatever it is the teacher's doing to promote um, word level reading in the context of them being able to do all this other stuff in oral language and in spoken language. So you can see that you're not denying the children access to beautiful children's literature, narrative, story, magic, wonder, all those things that we associate with the joy of reading. It's just that they're getting that, but the, the, the word level 
um, emphasis to get the system kick-started is happening in parallel rather than trying to use those sort of big aspects of reading comprehension to, to do the word level reading from the outset but it sort of allows I think people to realize that it's not either or that you can do it's what fits what fit it's what fit for purpose at the time for what the child needs and for a five-year-old child learning to read is about learning to um, work out how letters and sounds go together and how words are built and so on but there's no reason to stop everything else to do with comprehension and 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 oracy and narrative and so on while that's happening they both happen in parallel and then can then begin to come together you know, one of the things that I've become very interested in as a reporter is trying to probe um, the ways that collections of beliefs come together and like what goes, what are the other beliefs about children and teaching and learning that seem to go get, go with a more so, sort of whole language, balanced literacy, and balanced literacy doesn't equal whole language, but it clearly has its roots in whole language. Balanced literacy is sort of whole language plus some other things mixed, mixed in. And I think, for example, this, when you hear people talking, and I hear it all the time, that phonics is going to turn kids off to reading, what's the belief, what, what's the understanding about how reading works that underlies that concern? Well, the, the understanding of how reading works that I think mostly underlies that concern is that the main mechanism for reading is loving reading, that if you want to read and you love to read, that you will read. But that's not actually how it works. And so one of the, so your, phonics isn't going to turn kids off to reading. I mean, I'm not saying that we should give terrible instruction to children and then think that they're going to love reading. But when that's the primary concern, there's just kind of a misunderstanding of like just how it's working in the brain, like what you need to be a good reader. I think the thing that turns more kids off to reading than anything is not being able to read the words on the page. <laughs> and they're five and six years old and the kids around them seem to be figuring out how reading works and they don't. Yeah. And they don't like it and they get frustrated. And there's a lot of evidence that this is actually where behavior problems start. The chicken or the right question with the relationship between reading and behavior, well, behavior is very often, I think, good evidence to show the cause. So. I think it's really important to sort of think about the other kinds of beliefs that go with it, because I think this is why it's such a fight. Like, we, I think we are making some progress on like phonics matters and phonics is important, but what are the other things that are being like resisted? And what's like, what's like included in your typical kind of balanced literacy block in American schools? Because one of the, you know, strange ironies about what's going on with reading is we actually spend a lot of time teaching kids to read in kindergarten, yeah. first and second yeah. grade. <laughs> like 90 minutes, yeah. two hours, yeah. there's these huge literacy blocks. And we can talk about that later because I think that's part of the problem, actually, uh, is that we may be spending more time on that and less time on building knowledge and vocabulary and the other piece that's so important to being having good reading comprehension by the time that you can decode all these words. So you want to bring kids decoding ability up to their level of linguistic language comprehension, but you got to keep developing the language comprehension, the, the linguistic ability and the knowledge, the background knowledge, the knowledge, and that's where achievement gaps you know, I think achievement gaps begin <laughs> with kids who can't decode, and then they get wider and wider and wider when kids can't decode, but then also this question of what knowledge and vocabulary kids have. But like some of the other beliefs um, that, uh, Norma, you were talking about this, like this idea that we have that, or you were saying, to, uh, Tiffany, that like this idea that we like lobotomize teachers and that we give them a curriculum and just have them do it and they don't know why. That's a big problem. 
But we have a lot of survey research in the United States that actually in K through two classrooms, there's a significant amount of teachers making up their own curriculum, yes. oh, like coming yeah. up yeah. on their own. Huge. So number one, and, and, there's, and, and there's the problem, problem is there's a strong belief, like some of these ideas about reading go with this belief that teachers should have the autonomy, mm -hmm. they should figure out what their curriculum is. They're the best ones to figure out how to assess uh, their children, what their children should be learning. and. So, so that's one set of beliefs, I think, that goes along with this. There's a whole bunch of other beliefs. Like there's a belief that goes along with some of the resistance to the reading science that has to do with this idea that all kids learn differently, that, you know, we have different learning styles and all kids need some different way to be taught how to read. And the evidence the, doesn't show us that. The evidence shows us that none of us are born with reading brains. We all need to learn basically the same things to turn our non-reading brains into reading brains. Some of us need more direct instruction to get there than others, but it's not, it's not some totally, totally different kind of reading instruction you need to create for all 25 children in your class. There's sort of one set, the kids need to figure out how the written language works. There's a bunch of things that teachers can do to help them figure that out. Some kids come in already knowing a decent amount of it and need to start up here. And some kids need to come in starting right at the ground level. And some kids need a real intense amount of it and other kids don't. Um, but so I, I, think, I think we have to start figuring out like what these other belief systems are um, in order to really break this up and help teachers understand what what the science really says and what that means about how they should be teaching. And sadly, Norma, I have, I have talked to people who got reading, reading specialist degrees relatively recently who didn't learn the simple yeah. yeah. So yeah. They're more, you're more likely, hopefully, to learn it. But you can actually be a reading specialist in the United States of America and not know that. Yeah, no, absolutely. Because <laughs> yeah. we've, we've had this conversation before that um, when I was looking for programs to do my reading specialist, I, I came to IHP specifically because I knew that I would get that diagnostic background because I had worked in reading. I was in reading intervention. I have background in special ed. And I felt like there was this mystical term of disability called dyslexia that wasn't allowed to be talked about in the school. And then I was not prepared enough to teach it. And I looked at several programs here in Massachusetts and online, and there were, there were just no, there was very minimal um, diagnostic practice and there was more on reading theory. And it's for me, that's not what I was looking for because I had, you know, I had that background already, but I certainly, you know, learning the simple view in one of Dr. Hogan's classes um, during the program was really a light bulb moment for me in understanding, um, you know, how, how reading worked. But I think one thing that's interesting is um, that, you know, even though we have teachers in K-2 that are creating their own curriculum or creating, you know, not using programs, that theory or belief is a curriculum within itself. And it's something that within the last you know, 10, uh, 15 years has really taken hold. We've really moved away from whole class instruction and uh, more towards a workshop model of having small groups and that being the accepted way to teach reading. And I think that one of the things that was said was so interesting is that we spend so much time on teaching reading and, you know, being a reading specialist, I'm not going to say that that's not important. However, the time in which children actually spend on task in direct instructions in which they're going to learn is so minimal when you visit classrooms. Um, a lot of time is wasted. I think if we shifted how we thought about direct instruction and small group instruction um, or a whole, whole class versus small group, we really would have a lot more time to do so many more interesting, rich, fun activities with kids in the younger grades because we would be able to 
get in there, teach it effectively, and move on and enjoy rich literature and build vocabulary and background knowledge through inquiry and, you know, pull in science and math. Like, there's just so much time that, um, like you said, there's so many bits and pieces that are all important, but the frequency and the when and the timing of how to teach it is not well defined. And that's something I think that could really, you know, make a change um, in not only practice, but in children's learning as well. Yeah, I want to say a few things about that. So um, just I want to touch on the simple view too. just what what people know about it. So I've been talking about the simple view. That's how I start every one of my professional development talks. All my courses are based in the simple view. And I've been teaching that now and, and giving talks on the simple view for, you know, I don't, at least a decade, if not more. And I remember the first, this is actually so humorous when I reflect on it. So the first time I gave a talk on the simple view, and then maybe like the second or third time, I was actually very nervous to go give the talk because I thought, well, everyone's going to know this already. And this is going to be really boring for everyone in the audience. Now I'm over a decade la later, and that has yet to happen. And I, I, I tell my students, when that happens, I will sing hallelujah, because that I still, it's still like this kind of aha moment about, oh, you don't have to choose a side. There's both sides and there's a time and place for both. And from a speech language pathologist point of view, and a lot of times what I, as a speech language pathologist, I'm talking to speech language pathologists, special educators, also teachers. The simple view is nice in the sense that you can really diffuse some of the reading war discussion because you say they're both necessary. But as you touched, touched on Emily, when are they needed and how much? Because we're not even to that nuance yet. And I think that's where we need to go. Just like Norma mentioned, there's so much time spent in the literacy block. But what we really need to start getting to is how much time should be spent on each task and also really its own um, questions in each. So as a speech pathologist, I've worked on a language comprehension curriculum through this Reading for Understanding initiative the Department of Education funded uh, starting in 2010. And in that initiative, we worked on a language comprehension curriculum that was completely separate of phonics, completely separate, 30 minutes a day in the whole classroom, pre-K to grade three. And for us, it was like, well, of course, we're going to focus on the language comprehension. That's really what we're coming to. That's our background knowledge in terms of stimulating language. But we never uh, you know, we knew the research in phonics. And so the idea was that's going to be taught completely separately, you know, and its own time. And so I think that this idea of maybe specifying the two groups, you know, so you have an understanding of what's needed, but these two groups of researchers can work a bit separately in terms of what is needed and then come together in the curriculum block and then thinking about development across time. So the word reading should be the majority of the literacy block, the phonics instruction early on, but not ignore language comprehension and then move forward. I've actually seen this play out in the preschool classrooms a bit. So I have three children, one's 13, the other are two and four. So I have a, almost like a different generation of children going through preschool. So when my 13 year old went through preschool, I have to admit I was quite appalled. I chose the quote unquote best preschool I could send him. And it was all about language stimulation and social emotional development. And he's getting all this, you know, these great units on language, his vocabulary is skyrocketing. And I walk in one day and they have a gigantic poster that's all about how they do not believe in letters in the classroom at all. Zero letters. That's their philosophy because reading is natural. And I just like kind of lost my breath. I was like, oh my goodness. I kept him in the preschool, but let me tell you, I did a lot of uh, pre-literacy at home in terms of the letters. And I did talk to them and, and you know, work with them a bit on this. Um, now, fast forward to my two and four-year-old. 
I, my four-year-old's in a classroom and I really see it playing out in a way that I think it should and it's really going quite well. And that is, it's a pre-K classroom where they're getting all the stimulation in language that you would expect from a preschool very child appropriate, these units, these themes, but there's, they're not shying away from letters and letter sounds. They're incorporating it in. So they have their special, their kind of time to talk about letters and sounds, but then they don't just ignore it. So if they're talking about a unit on animals and they're looking at it, they can say, oh, there's that letter A, what sound does it make in this animal? So it doesn't have to be like you said, Kate, this either or that is playing out right now. And unfortunately, I think the either or is stopping us from moving forward in our research agendas and working with teachers to implement what really needs to happen and the nuances of those uh, needs. Yeah, I mean, I think what you've said makes perfect sense and makes me realize that I think England has perhaps come quite a long way. It's easy to think there's been no progress or progress hasn't been fast enough, but hearing you talking about the situation in 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 the us i i feel you know um quite pleased with what i see in in our local schools yeah so uh it's not an easy time to be proud to be british at the moment with our brexit <laughs> oh well it's hard to be proud to be american sometimes yeah. we feel a lot of solidarity there so no worries but yeah so yeah, what is happening yeah. yeah so kate what is happening there i do think nor before the podcast norm and i were talking and it, i see the the in england in particular with the phonics check it seems like you're we're looking into a window into our future and you maybe are starting to get some of the nuances to balancing and i want to recapture the word balance to actually be what it is yeah. uh which yeah. is doing both can you tell us about the phonics check and what you're seeing there Media. And I think the, the, the challenge now in, in England is, is moving to think about the language gap. I mean, sometimes it's referred to as the word gap. I keep trying to bring it back and talk about the language gap because that's what it is. It's a language gap. It's a knowledge gap in the broadest cultural literacy type sense. It's not about, you know, drilling on knowing, you know, these high frequency words versus those low frequency words and so on. So there's a big, big language gap. It's associated with social disadvantage, kids who go to school with low levels of language. Um, are just disadvantaged through, you know, and it just snowballs and gets bigger. It's associated with all sorts of poor outcomes and so on. And of course, it's closely associated with poor reading as well. And so, you know, the the poor get poorer in in in, in all senses. So, as well as the sort of instantiation of the phonics curriculum, it's pleasing to see the language gap now being sort of front and front and central stage. And I guess a move in in some circles at least to think about what needs to happen in classrooms to make language a focus so that the knowledge gap can start to be plugged when kids get to school so that then you know the work's going on in reading and then this other work's go, going on with the kids and and kids are well placed to to learn and 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 and, and so on so that's sort of pleasing but i guess it had its foundations in setting up the um the phonics um, phonics screening check. So just historically, we had our own, I guess, equivalent to the National Reading Panel in 2006. It reported Jim Rose's report in 2006. And that framed learning to read uh, in the simple view. So that was the first time that the simple view was really out there in a policy document back in 2006. Um, where the emphasis was made clear that we have this sort of stuff to do with decoding and learning to read words, but we also need this language rich curriculum as well. 
I think it's fair to say that until relatively recently, the emphasis has been on the decoding and the phonics side of things, and, and for good reason, you know, but I think there is a sense of, look, we've got to do more to, to deal with knowledge and vocabulary and, and, and language and so on. But the phonics screening check, I think, has been important in helping, helping, hopefully, we don't know for sure, but hope, hopefully helping reading standards improve. So that was introduced in 2012. And it's a short um, reading test that kids do at the end of year one. So they're uh, about six years of age. Um, when the test was, and it's very simple and straightforward, you shouldn't really call it a test, but um, the kids shouldn't even know that it's a test. Um, they just read aloud 20 words and 20 not words, and it's scored by the, the, the test administrator, the teacher. In the first year of the check, I've just got it noted down here in 2012, the so-called pass mark was, um, 58% of children met that pass mark. And then there's been year on year increases now. And uh, in 2018, it was 82% of year one kids were able to meet the required standard. Mm. If they don't meet the required standard at the end of year one, then they have another assessment at the end of year two. And the figures then 92% of, of kids are, are meeting that, that threshold. So the top line figures look good and pleasing. And it, you know, we can talk about, isn't it terrible teachers are teaching to the test, but I think not when it's something as important as learning how to you know, identify words, right? So um, I think behind those headline figures, there are some things of concern that we still need to think about. So um, the, the kids with special educational needs do, not surprisingly, they do poorly in the, uh, the phonics check. Um, their average, on average, 44% of kids with a special a recognised special educational need meet the pass rate compared with 89% of their peers. So there's a big gap there. But again, it isn't surprising. The question is what's being done to support those kids so that they can then move on with their reading. There's also a big difference associated with social disadvantage as well, that kids who are in receipt of free school meals um, do less poorly, uh, sorry, do more poorly on the, uh, the, the phonics screen. But nevertheless, I mean, going from 58% of kids meeting, meeting uh, the benchmark through to 82% in, in six or seven years is pleasing progress. But as pleasing, I think, is now this thinking about, well, what are we going to do about the rest of it? That, yes, the phonics is important, but how about everything else? And if we really want to think about reading for um, dealing with social disadvantage and all that falls from that, you mentioned earlier, Emily, the uh, behavioural, socio-emotional, mental health, criminal justice systems, you know, on and on and on. So much of that could be um, minimised if kids are able to read and have the language skills to advocate for themselves. So, um, yeah, so let's let's report back in a few years time. Yeah, I, I guess the worry with the language curriculum is um, that's a much bigger problem to crack. And yeah. in, in a way, getting kids decoding is the easier piece. <laughs> What's the, the other, not rocket the science, other thing I think? But it's not rocket science, but yeah. dealing with the enormity of language and the lack of malleability in language, I think, is a real challenge because it's. It's open-ended, whereas learning to, to read words is a closed system, isn't it? If you can do it enough to get the basics in place and the self-teaching takes over, then it's just a matter, just a matter. <laughs> just a matter of reading a lot, and the more you read, the, the more expert you become. You know, the language, knowledge, those are bigger words that are harder to shift, I think. Yeah. Bigger problems. I think it's important to... I think it's important to recognize 
that we don't have this other part of it figured out. Because, like, in some ways, the reading wars got pitched as sort of, like, comprehension and love of reading and reading real authentic text versus teaching skills and phonics and stuff like that. So we, we kind of, rec I think there's a recognition, like, the teaching skills and phonics and stuff like that is important, and you can see in a lot of places that people have added phonics and they are adding phonics, so we need to get that question of how much they're doing it and how, whether they're doing it well and whether the phonemic awareness is there. But when we talk about, about like balanced literacy, like, oh, so there's this piece that's been kind of missing. We haven't been doing it enough, haven't been doing it well here in the United States. I don't think we should then assume like we're doing the other part so well, because we're not doing the other part so well. Even though like whole language, language and balanced literacy is supposed to be about giving kids access to authentic texts and all about comprehension, I don't think if you go into most classrooms and you know the science, you'd be like, oh, they're doing a really good job building vocabulary and knowledge, because they're not, because unfortunately, a lot of the stuff that balanced literacy is based on the leveled reading systems, the kinds of stories and stuff that books are getting are not a lot of them really content rich, really full of stuff that kids are going to be learning from. So it's not like one side of balanced literacy is off in the United States and we can bring that up and we're fine. Both parts of it are kind of off very off. <laughs> and we got to bring them both up. We got to understand so that when you go into a classroom, what you don't want to see is 90 minutes or two hours of kids who are in first grade who can't decode that many words yet going off and spending 30 minutes reading on their own. That doesn't really make a lot of sense. There might be some kids who are six years old who could go off and read on their own, but it's probably not even the best use of time for them. Instructional time could be spent even with those little word nerdy kids who are really good at reading, teaching them some really cool stuff about how spelling works. You could be spending your time on that. Part of our problem is that a lot of the teachers, no fault of their own, don't have that knowledge to be able to teach it at that sophisticated level. They don't understand that much how the spelling system works. And it's complicated. I don't really understand that much how the spelling system works. You can be a really good reader and a really good speller, which I am, and I don't, I don't actually understand that much about how the spelling system works. I've been trying to learn, learn that as I do this reporting. But what you need to know to be able to teach something to someone is so much different than what you need to be able to know to do it well. Um, so we have to keep that in mind. And <laughs> since this is a podcast, you can bleep out this swear if you want, but I'm going to give you a funny little anecdote, which I think represents sort of like where we're kind of off in the United States. I was visiting some classrooms. Well, I was interviewing someone who spent a lot of time visiting classrooms and was trying to figure out kind of like what was wrong with what she was seeing in a lot of balanced literacy. And she sort of figured out like this idea that we're sending five-year-olds off to read on their own for a long time was kind of wrong. So she's in a classroom. She was starting to see some of this stuff. So she was in a classroom that was kind of doing it that way. Here's a little girl in kindergarten. This is a low-income school in a major city in a city in America. And they go off to their reading time and they're on their bean bags and then they're able to choose their own books. And this little girl is reading and this woman comes over. She's from a foundation. And says, what are you reading? Tell me about your, what you're reading. <laughs> and the little girl, the little girl looks at her and, and says, I can't fucking read. Can you? <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So, but it says it all. I have to say that one of the things, like there's this idea that that's so important that a five-year-old needs 20 minutes every day to go read by herself. And if we deny that to them, then we're somehow denying their access to a love of literature but it's actually not, it, it, um, this is probably too strong an adjective, but I would, say, I would say it's like almost educational malpractice no, no. to give a little kid a book to read that they don't know how to read the words yet. Why are you doing that? It is. That doesn't make any sense. It is. And they're not learning anything from it. So this teacher in a classroom out there who started to figure this out has been very careful when kids 
do go to independent time. She's like your book browsing. You can like look through books. You can look at the pictures of your book browsing. She doesn't use the word reading because that is not reading. If you send kids off, you can send them to look at books and look at the pictures. But if you haven't taught them enough about how those words work, you're not sending them off to read the books yeah. Emily, on their own. I want to touch on this educational malpractice because yeah. this is something Norma and I think a lot about in terms of the dyslexia laws that have been put into place because Norma and I were both very involved in the uh, passing of the dyslexia law in Massachusetts. And it will be a disaster if we don't get the basic phonics instruction in place because if you are you know, screening early for dyslexia and you haven't had, children haven't had a strong basis in phonetics, you're gonna have 30 to 40% of children who are going to be high risk for dyslexia. And instead you're gonna miss those ones that truly are at risk for dyslexia. And in the mix is gonna be the ones that ha are casualties of educational malpractice. And that's why I think these two um, issues are intimately tied and activating that network of decoding dyslexia uh, network across the United States to now shift to think about strong phonics instructions for all children is just absolutely critical. Yeah, and I would I would definitely say that it is educational malpractice because we if we think about it, you know, within schools it's a public system in which every taxpayer puts money into, and the outcomes for so many children are so poor. And those outcomes, there's um, some you know, educational research from Jeannie Oaks that shows those outcomes are largely based on teacher expectations. And some of those teacher expectations are formed before a child is even out of the window in kindergarten. They're already labeled as you know, slow to learn or a bad reader. And that label is really hard for children to drop. And that really determines their trajectories. We know that a lot of the universal screenings we do are tied to third grade reading scores which are supposed to be predictors of SAT and high school graduation. Um, we know that some states in the United States, they actually use third grade reading scores in order to calculate prison beds in the state prison system. So we really are creating educational malpractice when we should be giving every child every piece of evidence, every piece of um, instruction that is gonna help them to be able to realize their full potential so they can participate in this democracy that we all live in. It really needs to be a little bit more of um, use of strong words like you're using in educational malpractice because it really is not even a crisis. It really is just something that we really need to think of as so morally wrong that we are casting off children just because we're not we're not getting it right. And whatever that means and whatever way that means, um, I think is up for debate and there's a lot of room within that, but we are do doing something so wrong when young kids, and I've seen kids and I've worked with five-year-olds who infer that they're stupid because they can't read at the same pace as their peers. And that, that it's just not okay. It's devastating. I wanna be mindful of our time. I think we've had amazing discussion. I have a few questions that I want to um, ask of each of you as we wrap up. The first question is, I would like to know from each of you, what if you had to choose one tactic right now to end the reading wars and to improve uh, the situation in classrooms, what would it be? Don't everyone go first. Who's going first? <laughs> Don't everyone jump in. Go team, I'll go. Okay, Norma's gonna go. She's gonna invite the bullet. Um, I, I think that it all boils down to changing how either we legislate or have policy around teacher training and implementation and how closely schools are monitored. I think that the intent of No Child Left Behind and some of the testing was to get at this. 
but the outcomes that we're using aren't matching what we're expecting to, to be put in. So I think that that policy piece really needs to happen. And simultaneously, along with giving teachers that training, we need to also have parents understand what exactly should be going on in schools. And that's something that I'm so grateful, Emily, that you are doing that reporting because I share so many of your articles with families that I've worked with and they share it with their friends and it has a ripple effect of them saying, hey, I'm seeing this with my kid. Hey, I'm not seeing this in my school. And then maybe they'll go to a school board meeting or maybe they'll go into um, you know, their principal's office and, and have a discussion about it. And I think the more that it's out there and um, the information is known, the more chance we, or the better chance that we have to leverage all of, of that um, spotlight to make some real changes. Yeah, and for me, I think it would be, um echoing some of your comments Norma initial teacher preparation initial teacher training so that teachers go into the classroom knowing how the writing system works being expert in it themselves I mean we all are we are because we you know we we can speak and, uh, and use language but knowing that knowledge explicitly so that we can then teach it and 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 I think it's probably in Mark Seidenberg's book where he talks about wouldn't it be you know what what teachers really need is lessons in linguistics or in psycholinguistics mm. um, and I think that that for me would be the big thing then getting teachers prepared so that when they go into the classroom they can they're not learning it on the job they've already got that background not always they're lucky to work in a school where there's good apprenticeship models and they can learn from other teachers but it's there and it's absolutely fundamentally in the teacher education and it's not the case here I think things have improved a lot in in the UK but you know some of our teacher training programs are really short they're only a year in length and I, I see sometimes things that you, you see on the curriculum and it's like you know why does a you know a year one teacher need to know about you know Piaget it's not that Piaget and lessons from Piaget and Vygotsky aren't important, but compared with the basics of how the writing system works and how to teach reading and writing effectively and efficiently, while capturing the joy of language and, and so on, seems to me really fundamental. I'm missing a trick not to do it. Yeah, it's an opportunity cost question, which is the way that I look at it more and more and more. I mean, teacher training and what happens in classrooms. There's a limited amount of time for everything. We're never going to have all the time in the world. So you've got to think about what you're focusing on. Um, and I think we, so I think what you both have said, I think teacher knowledge is super important. I think what Kate said, we do focus on teachers needing to know like the science and about phonics, but I think this thing that they need to know about how the English language works is not being talked about enough. That is so important because that really is the key to making it work in the classroom. So the other side of it though, we need to really look at what's going on in schools too. So like if we say we changed, I think teacher preparation is probably the more difficult thing, the thing that's going to be the hardest to change, but say we did teach, uh, fixed teacher preparation and all, all teachers were coming out of their one or two year pro two year program with some good knowledge of the science and with some good linguistic knowledge. Then a lot of them go into schools though, and they don't find the other people there know that stuff, or they teach a curriculum that really is, is, has some of that stuff mixed in, but is based on a set of beliefs that are very that are not informed by the science. So I think we really need to look more carefully at the curriculum and the approaches. We've had a kind of way of doing it in the United States where we sort of like look at programs and study programs. I think we need to take one step back and look at like what's the, what are the approaches that we're using here? It's harder to like do a controlled study about that. But we need some way, I think we need the scientists, we need, we need, we need people like Kate and Mark Seidenberg to go in and look at what's happening in a balanced literacy classroom, look at how time is used. 
and tell us <laughs> where, where does this line up? If you were going to, if you knew the science and you were going to design reading curriculum, reading would it, instruction, would it look like that? Uh-uh. It wouldn't look like a lot of what we're doing in a lot of schools. So how do we get there? So we can say, we can have teachers have the knowledge, but they need to have the materials, the support, the structures, the ongoing professional development. There's no way teachers are going to learn as much as they need to know. Even if we made teacher preparation five years, they probably wouldn't learn everything they need to know. But that's probably, we probably do need teacher preparation to be more like four or five years. They're really going to learn all this stuff. So yeah, and I do, I mean, I'll, I'll just, to fellow reporters who may or may not be listening to this, we do need more journalism on this too, because you need, this needs to be exposed and documented. We need to document where it's not working. We actually need to document where it's going right too, because a lot of people who are skeptical still need to be convinced. We need to show them, like, this is working here, this changed here. Um, so we really need more of that. And this is an intimidating topic. It's intimidating to me as a reporter. And I know I've talked to a lot of reporters. There's a lot of landmines. There's a lot of things to get wrong. It's really complicated. I think a lot of people shy away from it and taking on like the big bites, like taking on the big elephants in the room. There's a lot of elephants in the room they're not really naming, I think, in terms of what's really going on out there in the name of teaching reading. We need to like name those more and document them and show, show, what, show what's not quite right and why. Emily, I'm going to riff on that and say, too, that what I was going to mention is right in line with your thinking. And I'm going to speak more to the, the researcher field, you know, group. Um, you were speaking to fellow journalists and and I want to speak to fellow scientists and, and even just the infrastructure we work in. I think we need to do more implementation science. So my students have really uh, talked to me more about this and I've, I've got more into what is what does this look like? And implementation science is exactly what you said, Emily. It's going into the classroom. It's seeing what's happening. It's also the process of working with teachers uh, to create uh, curriculums that are scientifically based, that are scalable and actually work in the classroom. So seeing teachers and administrators as partners in your scientific endeavor, as opposed to just research you know, informing practice, but really the vice versa, practice informing research so that we can then bridge that gap in a way that creates partnerships and working together. And we've been doing that here in, in my lab um, and really thinking about it. But one of the barriers, biggest barriers is funding and, uh, and also um, the system in which scientists receive uh, promotions, uh, rewards publications. And um, those publications are, the best publications tend to be those that are less messy. And you mentioned how messy this research is. So I think we have to um, create systems that understand the messiness of implementation science, fund implementation science, um, and reward it. And even in the school system too, you know, teachers getting rewarded for working with scientists. And so we can create the system. And I think there's a lot of hope that that system is being created. I see it more and more in the conferences I'm attending, in the uh, research proposals and grant mechanisms that are out there that are focusing on implementation science. I think it's, I think there's a lot of hope um, out there for this type of work and it needs to be done. Yep. Okay, so uh, the other question I wanna ask you is, uh, I would like Emily and Kate to each speak about what are they working on right now that they're most excited about? It kind of maybe gets to this a little bit, but we can also open it up to other types of projects, but what are you working on now? Should I get it? Uh, yeah, so working on lots and lots of different things, but I thought the thing I, I'd share with you today is um, 
what literally I've been working on this morning, which has been looking at some data from um, the 500 words writing competition that runs in the UK. So this is an amazing competition that launched, I don't know, back in 2012, something like that. Uh, it's run by the BBC and it's a national competition where children aged between 5 and 13 can submit a story. Um, and the only constraint is it can't be more than 500 words. It's called the 500 words writing competition. And it's, um, it's showcased by um, a really sort of popular morning breakfast DJ and gets lots of um, media attention and so on. And each year, the number of children entering this competition goes up and up and up. And just last week, we got the data for the 2019 uh, entries. And we're nearly at um, a million stories now. So over the last few years, that many children have submitted a story, which is a good news story in itself. Um, this is work done by my colleagues at Oxford University Press. And we're very lucky that we, we get to see the stories that the children write. And um, we, we saw the data for the first time last year, uh, last week. And it's an absolute joy to see what the kids are writing about. And this is the success of the reading instruction when you see what the kids are writing. And to think that it's stifling creative I mean, no, this is this is not the case. Amazing stories, um, but also, of course, for us, for research purposes, it's just a, a gold mine of wonderful things to, to look at. And um, what we've been looking at um, over the last few days, and I say we, this is um, my colleagues, um, Yaling Shao and Nicola Dawson. One thing we've been looking at is morphology in children's writing, looking to see when they begin writing more complex words. I mean, it was some really interesting headline data. Um, hardly anybody else in the world knows this yet. So this is uh, fresh, fresh, fresh off the page uh, uh, just this week. Just looking at um, the proportion of words that children write that are maybe compound words, so something like foot and ball put together to make football, versus derivational words like unbreakable, where you've got a unbreakable bits. And we can just see that the, the number of compound words is fairly constant across development as a proportion of the number of words that they produce. But the morphological complexity of derived words just sort of goes up and really takes off to about seven and a half, eight years of age, where the kids are being able to use language productively in their own writing. Wow. So that's just a really lovely to see at scale. And we've got, you know, millions and millions of words, uh, too many words really for us to deal with. Um, uh, but what we can begin to think about is what the words they're writing and how they're using language in their writing relates to what they're reading, but also to the type of instruction that they're getting. And in addition to the phonics emphasis in the UK, there's a, a curriculum that's trying to bring the principles of explicit and direct instruction to spelling, pronunciation and grammar. And so there's quite a prescribed curriculum as to what teachers are expected to teach in year one, year two, year three in terms of um, adverbs, verbs, and so on, and, and derivations. And so we're trying to make links between the curriculum and what changes we're seeing in the children's writing year by year. Oh, so. wow. We will be watching those results. And thank you for sharing that initial result. That's yeah. amazing. Awesome. Ah, uh, this is Emily. So I have a, I do, I'm working on another reporting project. project. It'll be a podcast and an article coming out in August. Um, and I can't say too much about what it is specifically, but I, it, I'm, I'm getting at these ideas about what, what, what are the ideas about how children learn to read words in particular that are embedded in popular curriculum materials and approaches to teaching reading. Because I think what's happening is phonics is getting added in, um, but like what else is present? Uh, in typical balanced literacy approaches. So, you know, one way to look at what's happening with reading is like what's absent, what we're not doing, then it's like what we are doing that may 
not be a good use of time, but may actually be really like getting in the way of kids really learning how their written language works. Um, so I think we're doing some things in classroom phonics over here for 10 or 20 minutes, and then some other stuff over here uh, that undercuts what we're doing in the phonics instruction. So that's coming in in August. Stay tuned. Mm, that sounds amazing. I cannot wait. It sounds like the perfect direction, too, from all the work that you've been doing. So uh, I look forward to it. My very last question I like to ask all of guests, and Kate knows this, is what is your uh, favorite book from your childhood or now or both? Uh, we'll start with Emily. So I have a hot off the presses book that hasn't been published yet that I just got a copy of that's going to be published in August. I just read the first half of it uh, over the weekend and last week on the train coming home from New York. Uh, it's by Natalie Wexler, who's a veteran education reporter who knows a lot, about, a lot about the reading science. And the book is called The Knowledge Gap, The Hidden Cause of America's Broken Education System and How to Fix It. Wow. A title written by a publisher, nice and dramatic. <laughs> but um, it, is, it is about what we've been talking about, which is this other piece of the puzzle, which is the knowledge part, which is, which is the important thing to think about on the other side of the simple view of reading. It's not just the words you know, but it's the knowledge you bring. And so what she's really looking at is how we have gone a little bit knowledge free in K through 12, uh, K through two and beyond curriculum in the United States. And what a problem that is. So when you hear people saying, like a lot of times you'll hear people who are kind of anti-phonics when you press their beliefs. That, you know, you teach, well, kids are learning how to decode words and then they become little word callers where they have no idea what they're reading. Now, number one, I don't know that there's a lot of evidence that, that there's, that's really such a huge problem. But I think what's happening when kids seem to be able to decode words is a few things. I mean, number one, a lot of those kids aren't, are still decoding words when they're like in fourth and fifth grade, and they shouldn't be doing that. <laughs> if we know about orthographic mapping, which we could talk about, um, you know, that you need to get automatic with these words and know these words. You're not actually, when you're an expert re reader, you're not going along decoding every word that you come to. So some kids can decode words, but they are not automatic with them, which is taking a lot of their brain power, and then they're not comprehending what they're reading. Another issue with reading comprehension is that a lot of kids really do have, as Kate was talking about, very, very low just vocabulary and language. But another big part of it is the knowledge. They, they're, if they're not being taught science and social studies, history, facts, how to tie things together, if they don't have a framework for the things that they're reading, the comprehension is going to fall behind. And we, so she's really documenting this book in a really great way, just how and why we became so um, content-free and focused more on sort of skills and strategies. And that's what's happening in a lot of balanced literacy classrooms. So we're talking a lot about like reading skills and strategies but not, not actually teaching kids to decode words and then giving them really good stuff to read. And in the meantime, before they can read the words on the page, when they're in kindergarten, first and second grade, teaching them history, teaching them science, teaching them stuff that's going to help them comprehend what they're reading and make them want to read more. Absolutely. Oh, that sounds fantastic. I, I can't wait to read that myself. And, and that's really near and dear to my heart. And I know Kate's as well and Norma uh, thinking about the language comprehension processes and knowledge uh, associated with those processes. So that's quite fantastic. Kate, you shared your favorite book before, but I'd love for you to share it again or different if you'd like. Well, I thought about a different one, but that felt like it was breaking the rules. So <laughs> it was my favorite one from, from childhood from last time, which is what Katie did. Mm -hmm. I love it. I love it. I, I like, too, that in the uh, first podcast that we had with you and Anne about the reading wars, you even shared your original copy that you had. I know. <laughs> so it just shows how, how important that book is to you and how that maybe set you on your trajectory. So thank you for sharing. 
Great. Norma. Um, mine is definitely from my childhood. It has a little more sentimental. Um, Blueberries for Sal was my mm -hmm. favorite book growing up. Um, my grandmother used to walk with me to the library every week, and I just can have this vivid memory of picking it out um, and sharing that time with her. So it was a, a, always a special book to me. We love that book too, my house. That's fantastic. Well, thank you so much for joining, um, and I look forward to getting this podcast out to the listeners. I know it will be something that they look forward to and it's just an ongoing conversation so this is part two we may have part three four five and just keep keep the conversation moving forward so thank you thank you check out www.seeherspeakpodcast.com for helpful resources associated with this podcast including for example the podcast transcript research articles and speaker bios you can also sign up for email alerts on the website or subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or any other listening platform so you can be the first to hear about new episodes. Thank you for listening and good luck to you making the world a better place by helping one child at a time.